and welcome to the inaugural episode of FinTech Recap, a podcast in which we, as you might have guessed, recap the most interesting news, trends, and ideas from the FinTech space. Uh, my name is Alex Johnson. I am the publisher of the FinTech Takes newsletter and a director of research at Cornerstone Advisors. Um, we are thrilled to be podcasting live from the Money 2020 exhibit hall here at the Money 2020 conference in sunny Las Vegas, Nevada. And I am doubly thrilled to be joined by my partner in this effort, uh, Jason Mikula, who is the publisher of FinTech Business Weekly. Jason, thanks for being here. Absolutely. It's been a fun, interesting, exhausting uh, six days now that I've been in Vegas. Oh my God. Not all of which that has been sunny. Way, um, but yeah, uh, as Alex mentioned, I publish a newsletter called FinTech Business Weekly, which you can get each Sunday. I also do advising and consulting for FinTech and banking startups uh, in the US and actually around the world. So I'm really excited to kick off this inaugural episode and talk about some of what we've observed and learned this week at Money 2020 and what is happening, you know, elsewhere in the FinTech and crypto worlds. You mean everything's not happening at Money 2020? I kind of got that sense while I was here. Most everything is happening here. Uh, I guess Twitter's quiet because everyone's busy walking around meeting to meeting. Uh, but I think there were some announcements that had you know nothing to do with uh, Las Vegas and this fabulous event. <laughs> well, we are really thrilled to be able to uh, to bring this to uh, everyone's attention. Um, as Jason mentioned, we're going to hit some of the sort of high points in terms of the event, uh, things we heard in conversations with uh, folks at the event, uh, things we heard at sessions that we attended or just walking around the exhibit hall. Uh, we're gonna organize this into a number of kind of relevant themes uh, that came up just over and over over the course of the event and then um, we'll just sort of share some of the things we heard, some of the ideas and impressions that we came away from the event with. And Jason, as is now a requirement uh, in all things fintech, we must start with crypto and uh, DeFi and blockchain and stable coins. Um, this was not something that was a uh, focus uh, at the Money 2020 that I went to six or seven years ago, but it certainly is a main focus and a theme at the event this year. Um, I guess just starting at a high level, what are some of the kind of themes or ideas you've heard and sort of the crypto universe come out over the last week. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the you know velocity with which uh, all things crypto has sort of entered the mainstream consciousness of what I guess kids are calling TradFi or tradi traditional finance. Oh God, that makes me feel old. Uh, yeah. Um, and banking, you know, in a sense, it feels like it's been much faster than the speed at which banking sort of acknowledged the threat slash opportunity of fintech. Mm -hmm. I mean, already you're seeing, you know, a really strong uh, interest from, you know, fintech companies that offer more traditional banking products, as well as, you know, traditional um, licensed regulated banks in somehow being involved in the crypto space. That mm -hmm. could mean, you know, custodying assets, it could mean facilitating trading. I could mean embedding functionality related to DeFi in order to offer higher yields. Mm -hmm. So I mean, at a, at a thematic level, uh, you know, strong interest from companies in the more traditional space that mm -hmm. are consumer facing in integrating some type of crypto related offering. Uh, and then on the crypto side, uh, you know, everything is infrastructure. <laughs> um, and you know, much like we're experiencing now in the fintech or fiat 
world where um, infrastructure or building you know, service offerings uh, that can enable consumer-facing products. Also a huge trend I've noticed, you know, walking around the exhibit, talking to people in the crypto space, you know, how do you build services that then empower uh, end consumer-facing applications to integrate these types of functionalities? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. It seems like in crypto relative to, I think, looking at those two sort of waves hitting the financial industry, it's interesting to compare the two because one of the things that strikes me as interesting about crypto and seems to have been a theme at the event is that you're either solving for the infrastructure layer or you're solving for sort of the consumer onboarding and sort of the on-ramp for consumers. It seems like it's particularly difficult in crypto to solve for both of those at the same time. And so it seems like you're either deep in the weeds, kind of figuring out how the mechanics are going to work and making that available as a service and as something that's easy for others to consume, or you're spending all your time sort of obsessing over how do we abstract the complexity of crypto away from the customer, make the experience easier for them to understand, make it not feel scary or novel, but just feel like, a, as you're saying, a good opportunity to find yield. Yeah, and I think that's right. And uh, I'm curious to see how some of the parallels between sort of the fintech story from call it five, six, seven years ago mm -hmm. and today's crypto story, you know, play out. I mean, if, if people can remember that far back then, a lot of the narrative was, you know, banking is broken, banking is bad, fintech is here to, to solve all these problems. And I think if you fast forward to today, it's a very different story. It's more mm -hmm. about, you know, how to do fintech companies, banks, partner, collaborate, and sure, you know, there's competition there as well. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I think the story has really evolved a lot in that space. And I feel like some of that is repeating right now mm -hmm. in, in the sort of crypto DeFi world where the narrative, again, mm -hmm. is, you know, banking is broken, regulation is broken, mm -hmm. you know, DeFi crypto is here to fix everything. It's going to be amazing. Mm -hmm. And I suspect, suspect that the reality will play out you know, a little bit differently than that, where, you know, we're already both at a regulatory level and, you know, uh, some, you know, embrace of the opportunity, understanding mm -hmm. that, like, okay, if this is perceived as an asset class, if, uh, you know, Jamie Dimon doesn't believe in it, but his customers want it and he's willing <laughs> to give it to them. Yep. So, like, if, if there's demand, there's opportunity. And if there's one thing banks are good at, ways to make money. Absolutely. Yeah, no, and I think your, your point's a good one. I mean, it feels like the maturity of the larger ecosystem has come a long way since the early days of fintech and banks are very quickly getting over whatever sort of uh, qualms they might have had about crypto, of which there are some legitimate qualms um, and things to be concerned about, but everyone's kind of working towards how can we make this safe? How can we make this accessible? You know, one of the things that um, came up in some conversations that I thought was pretty interesting was figuring out how to walk the sort of unique lines regulatory perspective around crypto and you know using you know the sort of high yield savings accounts as an example obviously blockfi and coinbase and others sort of ran into some trouble there from a regulatory perspective because those are viewed as securities and so the the conversation that seems to be happening now is around how can we design an experience for consumers that's safe and that's easy but that puts a little more of the onus on them. And so instead of us offering a savings account where don't worry, we'll go find a yield for you and we'll return that back to you, which is the definition of a security, um, 
we are instead going to be a software platform that facilitates the transactions you want to execute on your behalf. And so functionally, it still acts as a savings account. It still sort of acts as a way to go get yield, but the onboarding and the sort of interface with the customer is different with the attempt to try to sort of navigate around this security problem. So I'm, I'm fascinated by the sort of unique regulatory challenges that crypto has and how companies are sort of running into these walls and then learning to kind of navigate around them. Well, it's interesting because, you know, I've already dated myself. It's like this conversation about, you know, what is the security <laughs> just makes me think of lending club, the sure. prosper and yeah. whatever it was 2014, 2015. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, I think you're right. There's a number of different, um, Know, areas of, of concern or, or where more work needs to be done. Mm -hmm. I mean, for instance, in this sort of savings account-esque space, yeah. you know, there are a number of companies that uh, in their consumer-facing site, application, et cetera, you know, present it as you're depositing U.S. dollars. Yeah. They show a balance in U.S. dollars yep. and you're earning whatever, four, six, eight percent. Yep. Um, you know, in that case, it's not unreasonable that a consumer using that may not understand at all what is really happening where you yep. know, in some cases they're uh, taking your USD deposit, you know, converting it to some type of stable coin or some mm -hmm. kind of other cryptocurrency, um, you know, pooling it or lending it out. Yep. Um, and so the consumer, you know, may be taking a level of risk that, you know, they don't necessarily understand. Yeah. So, so to your point, it's like, okay, you know, if somebody wants to, uh, invest or deposit money into a product in search of a 10% yield, yep. like, okay, like that's, there's nothing inherently problematic with that. Sure. But, you know, they need to have adequate information to understand what it is they're, they're buying or investing in. And, right. and I think that like some of the early days of FinTech, mm -hmm. you know, there's some, some work to be done there as far as um, you know, consumer disclosure. Yep. Well, and just understanding the, you know, between some of these different protocols and some of these different stable coins. I mean, you, you can't go one or two weeks without hearing about some bug that exists in the code and suddenly you're out $20 million that you thought you were going to have to reward stakeholders in your ecosystem. And, you know, now you're begging for the money back on Twitter, but it's, it's a very kind of chaotic ecosystem at the moment and lots of opportunity there. And it seems like customers are flocking to that opportunity, but there's to try to make it feel safer. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a philosophical question where you know part of the story of crypto DeFi, etc. Humans are right. created by product managers, software engineers, and mm -hmm. you know, QA engineers, and um, you know all sorts of humans go in to defining specifications and creating that software, yep. whether it's blockchain or smart contract or whatever. And yeah, bugs happen. Yeah, they do. They, they happen in traditional finance. Mm -hmm. uh, and they certainly you know, are, are happening in this blockchain uh, DeFi world as well. But the issue in that world is uh, oftentimes you know, these are not things that are then reversible. That's right. That's you know, right. If, if I work at a whatever, a lender or a bank that, you know, accidentally sends an ACH file twice and I double debit or double credit, mm -hmm. that can be reversed, remediated, fixed, mm -hmm. not right. uh, frowned, frowned upon by the regulators, but like it's fixable. Mm -hmm. But in, you know, in this world where you've removed humans and removed uh, 
to a large extent, regulators from the equation, you know, a lot of times there is no recourse besides, I guess, begging on Twitter for your money back. Right, 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 exactly. Or exhorting to perhaps threats on Twitter. So, you know, one thing I wanted to ask about before we move off of cryptocurrency, honestly, because I need someone to help me understand this, is the metaverse. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but since I have you, I wanted to ask, Facebook is making a lot of waves for their sort of coming rebrand where the rumor is they're going to sort of try to rebrand their holding company that'll sit over the social network to be more about the metaverse. And as this has made its way into mainstream technology and consumer publications, I've been amused at seeing writers who've never written the word metaverse write the word metaverse without maybe necessarily a lot of context. And honestly, I for them because I don't have a lot of context. What is the metaverse? And can you help me understand what that is? I would be happy to offer my perspective, but please like help me understand this magical term. So, I mean, I should caveat this with, like, I'm not an expert about this either, <laughs> right? So, you know, the lens that I'm coming at it through is, you know, what are the implications for, you know, sort of the idea of the economy, financial services, etc. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the concept of, you know, a metaverse or sort of a virtual reality universe, um, it's not necessarily new. I mean, I remember game, I guess, mm -hmm. uh, called Second Life put out by Linden Labs, and that dated to like 2003. I remember that. Uh, so I think it's more, you know, the technology obviously you know, has matured and advanced a lot since that time frame. Mm -hmm. I mean, my sort of like armchair is the uh, of You know, whatever Facebook glasses, mm -hmm. is it you experience, you know, through your phone or through sort of computerized interfaces that, that sort of surround you in mm -hmm. a physical space? Mm -hmm. uh, I, I don't think there's what that'll look like. Mm -hmm. um, but as I sort of said at the top, the part I find the most interesting is the idea of, you know, what is the economic world uh, of this metaverse yep. and how does that interrelate with, you know, the quote unquote real world. Yeah. So, you know, whether there's, uh, and I think gaming provides a good example and, yeah. and I'm not a gamer, yep. um, but in, you know, I, I listened to an episode of Odd Lots recently where they use the example of Magic the Gathering to illustrate this, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's a card game, people play it, but the cards itself are assets that people use real world money to buy and sell. Those assets have different values. So if you think about that idea sort of, um, you know, in a virtual global scale where you could have some sort of alternative currency, like a cryptocurrency, mm -hmm. or, you know, in, in a uh, unique asset, so non-fungible token, an NFT, and that can exist in a purely, you know, digital space, but then have a real world value attached to it. It's sort of transfer back and forth between these different types of currencies or asset classes. Mm -hmm. Um, I am very new to all of this, uh, so hopefully that is like kind of describing it correctly. That's great. That is actually very helpful for me, and I I think for our audience as well. I mean the the thing that you mentioned that kind of hits for me is that you know it's really attaching more tangible sort of economic value to the time we were already spending in the internet, right? I mean it's like the metaverse. Well, it's really the internet and the ability to interact uh, in a digital fashion with each other. Not a new concept by any means, but 
the ability to have tokens and the ability to be able to sort of share economic value between participants and the ability to have play to earn models for games and all of these things I have some sort of problems with those the general concept of those now being more integrated thanks to crypto and thanks to uh, sort of embedded I guess web 3.0 infrastructure the concept definitely makes sense and I, I think someone is very famous for saying that you know a lot of times the next big thing starts off as a way and it's just a matter of seeing how that evolves so I, I don't know that I saw the future of the metaverse here at money 2020 but I there was some little game or little corner of the expo where it was already flourishing we just haven't noticed it yet so with that, let's jump to the next topic. Um, money 2020 started in a lot of senses around kind of the future of money, the future of like e-commerce and payments. And one of the areas that's been in the news a lot lately, that's very relevant, I think, to that sort of original spirit of money 2020 is the sort of merging of like social media and shopping with payments. And the, the big story that came out and then was sort of backed away from gently was that uh, PayPal was going to acquire Pinterest uh, in a, I would imagine, fairly large transaction and uh, do that in order to sort of move up the payments funnel and get a little closer to sort of the intent of shoppers and all the different things that you pin on Pinterest. It's been a while since I've used Pinterest, so I can't describe its user experience very accurately. But it seems like that proposed idea and the reporting around it, it seemed to generate a lot of sort of divergent views. And um, some people thought it made sense. Some people were very against it. I think PayPal stock slid on the news a bit. And then it was announced that, no, 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 we're not actually going to do this. We're going to back away from it. I don't know how true that is or how true the original reporting is. But what was your sort of take on the, the general idea of combining those two? So at a conceptual level, I think it makes sense. Sure. I mean, you see um, other companies in the space pursuing similar strategies, mm -hmm. right? So, for instance, uh, buy now, pay later, everyone's favorite topic. Yeah. Companies like Klarna and Affirm, um, Zezel, for example, uh, offer you know a shopping experience through their website, mm -hmm. through their app. Mm -hmm. Why are they doing that? You know, they want to create brands and move up funnel. Yep. So instead of a consumer, you know, choosing to buy a pair of Adidas, going through the process of shopping and only at checkout seeing, you know, do you want to pay with Klarna? Yep. They're actually going to the Klarna app and starting their journey there. Mm -hmm. uh, for logical reasons, you know, Klarna wants to sort of capture that person at the beginning of their shopping journey. Mm -hmm. And potentially there are other sort of economics built into that if there's some sort of referral or affiliate scheme, mm -hmm. but mainly to, you know, steer them to using their option. Yep. In the PayPal Pinterest scenario, I think it's a little bit more challenging, and, and I was skeptical when I initially saw the news, in that you know Pinterest itself is not an e-commerce platform. No, it's a social media platform, mm -hmm. and not that you haven't seen some successful integrations of sort of shopping, you know, social uh, social shopping commerce. Yeah, yeah. Um, for instance, Instagram has made a big push there to mm -hmm. be, be able to purchase things sort of directly that you see in ads on mm -hmm. your phone. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the sort of market reaction and, and backing away uh, from the announced deal was kind of driven by uh, skepticism of how are these two entities going to successfully integrate? Yep. Um, you know, and a second order issue of risk to uh, 
potentially irritating other partners or members of its ecosystem, other social networks it works with. Mm -hmm. So at a conceptual level, I totally understand what the play is here. And mm -hmm. I think some companies are doing it successfully. This specific deal, um, I was a bit bearish on and, and I frankly didn't think it made a lot of sense. Well, clearly you got through to Dan Schulman yeah. because they, they're backing up. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's not uh, it's not gonna happen now. So thanks for that, Jason. I, I think it's a good point though, right? I mean, the, the distinction you draw is one that I think maybe gets glossed over or kind of combined together, but there's social media, there's shopping, and there's commerce, right? And those three distinct from each other. And to your point, you know, building a bridge between one whole challenge, right? There's a bunch of, as you mentioned, companies, TikTok, Instagram, uh, Facebook, all of them have tried over time to create more direct bridges into shopping. Um, companies like Shopify are really partnering with them to enable that. But to be honest with you, I don't think I've really seen any like breakthrough hits in that space. It's actually really hard to translate uh, social media activity and ads, which we know work and that we know is a very big business for all those companies, into actual buying on the same platforms. It doesn't ever seem to have quite worked. And so I think you're right. I think when people were sort of initially responding to the PayPal Pinterest deal, they were thinking of Pinterest shopping app. Mm -hmm. And it's really not. It's in some ways maybe a more sort of shopping oriented social network, just in terms of what people pin and how it works. but. I don't think they had necessarily cracked the code on building a bridge into shopping any more so than any of the other social networks had, maybe even less so. No, I think that's exactly right. I mean, at its core, Pinterest is an advertising company. Yes. Like their revenue is ad driven. Yep. So it's not even really integrated into a shopping experience where they're monetizing the fact that people are there to, you know, pin, you know, I want this one dress or this couch or what right, have you. Right. They're, you know, selling ads based on what people are interested in. Yep. One one counterpoint, I do not know if this is a thing in the US market, live streaming shopping uh, is yes. a big thing in China or maybe throughout mm -hmm. like uh, Asia Pacific. Mm -hmm. I think I just read a headline that somebody sold like a billion dollars worth of goods from a live stream shopping yeah. uh, feed. That there he, was a, a, a story about um, someone who was actually selling lipstick and they tried on like hundred plus different types of lipstick over the course of seven hours and moved in insane amount of product. So possible. I, I mm -hmm. don't know how successful that model has been or could be in the US, but mm -hmm. it, it certainly you know exists in, in some markets. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think you're right about buy now, pay later. It's definitely morphing into shopping. And I think the challenge that PayPal has as it relates to buy now, pay later, obviously they've rolled out a very successful buy now, pay later product. The edge that like a Klarna has is Klarna just is really good at marketing, right? Like they do social campaigns, they work with influencers, and you have to have a certain amount of coolness, for lack of a better word, to drive shopping behavior. And PayPal, for its many gifts, and I, I'm very impressed with them as a company, I don't think of them in that way. And I think making that transition is hard, which maybe explains why they're kind of looking for someone who can help them kind of add that sheen to the business. I'm with you. I don't think uh, Pinterest was necessarily the uh, the one to go to there. Um, next thing I want to jump to is, and this is maybe something that gets a little lost in the shuffle uh, here at Money 2020, given the size of companies and the number of companies that are participating, but there's a lot of community banking activity that's happened. I've actually run into quite a few smaller or community banks at this show. And 
you know, it, going back to what you were saying about sort of the differences between now and the early days of fintech, in the early days of fintech, community banks were coming to these types of shows or kind of dipping their toes in the water in fintech. And you could almost pick them out in the exhibit hall because they like sort of had this duck and cover like look about them. Like they were like trying to scan for information, but they didn't ever want to be cornered. And they were like very cagey and quiet and unassuming. And I, I've noticed that a lot of the community banks that are at this show and that are trying to engage, they're very engaged and they're very actively building and they have a fintech strategy. What are some of the things you've seen uh, kind of in the, the community bank space as it's sort of colliding with fintechs? I feel like this is an area that's not maybe talked about enough. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, there's a clear selection bias if they're at the show and we're talking to them. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah, the ones um, that stay at home are the ones you have to worry about. Uh, but I did actually also you know, have a couple of meetings with folks in the credit union space yep. and community banking or sort of small, smaller regional bank space. And I think my biggest takeaway was, you know, they understand that the world is changing very, very rapidly. Yep. Again, we're here at Money 2020. So yep. either, you know, they're, they're looking for information or looking for solutions or opportunities to, you know, understand what that, you know, what, what is the change that's happening and how do they navigate it? Yep. Um, you know, I do think it's, it's interesting. Um, you know, the number one, asset they have in this changing landscape, in a sense, mm -hmm. is their license. Yep. Something that in the US remains really difficult to yep. acquire. Yep. Um, and actually, you know, for an early stage company, early stage fintech might not even be a desirable thing to acquire. Um, and their asset, uh, key asset, geography has been rapidly declining in importance, yep. you know, obviously expedited by the pandemic. Yep. So it's kind of like reimagining what what is the role or how do, you know, smaller local community banks um, pivot, I yeah, guess, pivot. Mm -hmm. um, to sort of optimize the resources they have, optimize the assets they have in like the world we're in today and looking forward. Yep. And I mean, I think there's a number of interesting different strategies they can, pers can pursue. Mm -hmm. um, you know, for instance, one gentleman I talked to uh, was from a very large agriculture focused bank. Mm -hmm. And that's like, okay, this is a niche, well, relatively niche yeah, market, yeah. you know, compared to making it large. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's expertise that goes along with serving that client base. So yep. like maybe it's refocusing from trying to serve everybody in your community yep. to becoming more specialized. Mm -hmm. No, I agree with you. I mean, I, I was talking to a small credit union that grew up in the um, sort of airline business, right? And so their sort of initial base of membership was built around people who were pilots and uh, you know uh, stewardesses and kind of mechanics for planes and all the different roles that went into that and you know over time and I think this has happened in banking just generally every bank it seems like started with a group that they understood really well and what the last you know hundred plus years have been is just sort of expanding slowly into adjacent areas kind of to the point where you can't easily define who your kind of core customer base is anymore. But it was interesting when I was talking to this credit union because we were talking about like, okay, what are some of the challenges that um, you know people in the airline space face, and like, how can you kind of address those specifically? And you know, in five minutes, they told me a bunch of stuff that I had no idea about, right? Just being a consumer of these industries, like for example, um, apparently in lots of different airports, there are houses 
that are available for pilots. Crash pads. Yes, yeah. to purchase and to be able to stay at. And they're owned by the pilots, but they're like on airport property and they're designed to be kind of convenient for people who go through certain hubs and want to have sort of a place to stay. And they were kind of, as we were spitballing ideas, they're like, well, you know, what if we offered uh, mortgages or lending products oriented towards buying or selling those? Because valuing those and figuring out how to like, you know, transact with those is kind of a unique kind of niche. And I was like, bingo, that's it. That's exactly the type of thing that you need to focus on. So to your point, it feels like to a certain degree, community banking has just sort of opportunity to kind of get lazy in terms of their uh, understanding and how to serve um, their core customer base. But it's not like they don't have specialized knowledge of individual customer segments that can still be very competitive. So I'm very curious to see sort of how that pivot works out and how many try to go head to head against big banks and fintech versus kind of pivoting more as you're to leveraging their charter and kind of going down that banking as a service path. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, there are already, you know, a number of banks that are very successful doing that partnership mm -hmm. uh, around, you know, Corp and Stride and Web and Cross River yep. across different, typically focused on specific fintech verticals. Yep. So, you know, non-bank consumer lending, non-bank SMB lending, uh, debit card sponsorship programs, et cetera. Yep. Uh, but with something like, what, five, four or 5,000 banks plus four or 5,000 credit Presumably, that's not a viable path for all of them. Right. No, that's absolutely true. And I, I think that segues us to the last topic I wanted to touch on. And you, you mentioned it at the beginning. One way to think about Money 2020, I think, if you were to summarize it, is it is infrastructure week here in Las Vegas. And so infrastructure, infrastructure, infrastructure has been on everybody's minds, on everybody's lips. I think we were talking before we started recording about the fact that you, you know, kind of can't uh, avoid running into fintech companies that started with B2C, uh, started kind of trying to acquire customers, started to see what the cost to acquire through Facebook or Google was, and very quickly made the decision to pivot uh, to enabling others to follow in their paths and to being more of an infrastructure provider. But what are some of the sort of interesting conversations or highlights from this week focused so much on infrastructure? What are you seeing? Yeah, I mean, I heard the phrase picks and shovels a lot. Yeah. Um, which, I mean, if you think of the evolution of fintech, it, it's not surprising that this is sort of the point we're at now, mm -hmm. right? If I think of you know, companies I worked at in you know, 2010 to 2015, a lot of these underlying service providers, vendors, infrastructure, um, you know, didn't exist. Yep. So these companies you know, had to build it themselves. Um, sometimes with varying quality. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, you know, fast forward to today, and, you know, it's a very different world. You have uh -huh. all sorts of abstraction layers and service providers that are now solving those problems, some of which have been spun out from companies, you know, own homegrown solutions. Yep. So for instance, um, Avant comes to mind, yep. which is a sort of near prime lending startup in Chicago, and they spun out Avant. Uh, yep. I always confuse those two, um, which is like a loan origination, loan mm -hmm. management platform that like that is a piece of software they built, mm -hmm. productized it, started selling other, you know, other companies. Yep. And ultimately now that is a standalone $1 billion plus valued company. Yep. 
So I think it's like a lot of people went through this journey of like, oh, you know, these old solutions from like FIS or Pfizer or wherever mm -hmm. aren't great. Mm -hmm. You know, we're going to build something new and then realized, you know, oh, like other people are having this same problem. Yep. Like what we've built to solve our own problem internally can actually just become a product we sell to other people. Yep. Yep. Um, and there's some interesting, you know, results from that where, you know, it lowers cost to enter market increases uh, speed to get to market yep. for new consumer facing products. Yep. I do think there's some some risk or you know, risk of lack of differentiation yep. if everyone's sort of using the same collection of vendors. So you have to pick like, okay, if I'm gonna, you know, string together, you know, these eight, 10, 12 vendors and yep. launch a credit card, what is the piece of this that I'm gonna differentiate on? Right, right. No, I mean I think that's a great question, right? I mean it's it kind of goes back to speed to market versus differentiation like i mean and, and i've seen it at the show you walk by these booths and they're like launch a credit card in two weeks and you know start a uh, new challenger bank overnight and i mean there's just all of these like promises that quite frankly i think are probably pretty realistic right i mean the level of infrastructure that's been built is such that you kind of can start a new credit card program or a new neobank or a new wealth management app or what have you almost overnight. I mean, it's really, really quick, but I think it goes back to what you're saying. You know, it creates a very, very thin slice at which companies need to differentiate themselves, right? And then it's about marketing and distribution and how you acquire customers and what your user interface is like and how differentiated that user interface is in a way that actually delivers real value to customers. And it, it is interesting because I do, I guess my sort of longer term worry about infrastructure week and kind of the, the infrastructureification of, of fintech is that it's going to lock companies into doing things certain ways, mm -hmm. right? And so it's like, if you're launching a neobank, well, there's a very specific way that you get a ledger and a debit card and processing for that debit card and rewards and loyalty and integrations into the credit bureaus and integrations into uh, you know, kind of the the legacy sort of ACH payments infrastructure. So like all of these things are very determined and it's kind of like a river. It's like the path has already been cut and everyone follows it. And the thing I worry about is, and this is why I think I'm still very optimistic about fintech, there are so many other unsolved problems in financial services, like so many other segments or unique customer needs. But I do worry that meeting those needs is going to require building stuff a little differently, maybe than it's been mm -hmm. built so far. And so I do worry about everyone just sort of collapsing in on the same three ways to launch a neobank, building stuff differently, or, or building new stuff. Yeah, right? I mean, I think you know, there's a lot of interesting and exciting stuff happening in sort of the payroll API, HR time and attendance. Yeah, uh, obviously, sort of like cash flow or transaction data for bank accounts has mm -hmm. been around for a while, um, but you know building new capabilities that, you know, new infrastructure capabilities that then uh, new consumer facing products or, you know, better versions of existing consumer facing products can mm -hmm. be built on top of. Mm -hmm. No, I agree. I, I was talking to one company that's working on creating basically a um, analytics platform that neobanks kind of feed all of their data into from open banking and mm -hmm. from payroll, from all these different sources. And then the platform itself provides like insights that are aggregated across all those sources of data. And the intention isn't to, 
you know, tell you, hey, this is exactly what you need to do. It's to provide insights that people can then build differentiated products or features in their product around. And so the idea is to sort of provide infrastructure, but not necessarily to lock people into like one way of doing things. So I do think we are going to see an evolution of kind of what the infrastructure does and at what level it tries to solve the problem. Because yeah, to your point, I mean, I think we were talking about this before we started recording. Maybe you need one or two or three or four or five digital account opening platforms. You probably don't need 50 uh, in order to have a really robust, thriving ecosystem. And I feel like at least in categories, we're approaching that limit pretty closely. Yeah, absolutely. And th I mean, these things always move in, you know, in trend cycles, yeah. right? The 2015 era was like online lending, you yep. know, banks are slow or they're not lending to small businesses or, you know, it's hard for consumers. Tons of money pours into that space. Lots of companies do it. Some survive, some get acquired, some don't. Uh, we're definitely seeing that with buy now, pay later right now. Yep. Uh, I will go out on a limb and say in you know, 12, 24 months time, <laughs> you know, we're not gonna have as many as we have right now. Yep. Um, and you know, it's possible that the same thing is happening with infrastructure. It's, mm -hmm. it's on trend, it's attracting a lot of attention from founders, it's yep. attracting a lot of capital from investors. And yeah, you know, do we need 50 credit underwriting engine services? Yep. Or is that something that companies you know, want to insource at some point mm -hmm. because they view it as a competitive differentiator versus using you know, an outsourced platform to do it? Um, so I do think that you know, there's a lot of heat in the sector right now. And presumably, the companies that offer the best solutions or have the best sales forces <laughs> um, you know, will sort of rise to the top. Yep. You know, some of the redundant uh, capabilities, you know, may not survive. Well, I will say that having been at Money 2020 for the last four days, there are some really good sales forces here that are trying some very, very good techniques for trying to grab attention and pull people into their booths. Um, that's where we're going to leave it because we are out of time. Jason, thank you so much for joining me here live at Money 2020. It's been so fun to break this down and we'll be doing this again. Absolutely. Great to be here. I'm looking forward to uh, getting on to sunny LA and uh, we'll do this again. Awesome. Thank you, sir.